Support for this episode of Script Apart comes from Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Support for this episode also comes from Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart. My name's Al Horner, and this is a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. This week on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by a filmmaking duo who do not wait for permission and refuse to let small budgets rein in their incredible storytelling ambitions. Since announcing themselves as a fierce new force in independent filmmaking a decade ago with their 2012 meta-horror Resolution, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead have released a further four films, each one a staggeringly original triumph of imagination over budgetary restraints. Their 2014 film Spring was a low-cost, Lovecraftian tale set on a gorgeous stretch of the Italian coast that corkscrewed between romance and brutal body horror. 2017's The Endless, meanwhile, was a time-loop sci-fi head-scratcher involving a UFO cult that was just as spellbinding. By their 2019 film Synchronic, about a designer drug that allowed users to step through time, the duo had A-list actors like Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan queuing up to work with them, as well as a certain superhero mega-studio, the pair of since-directed episodes of Moon Knight and Loki for Marvel. It really is no wonder that Guillermo del Toro and last week's guest Mike Flanagan are among this pair's famous fans. These guys are storytellers capable of creating epic worlds without requiring epic resources and have a DIY spirit to them that is so inspiring. While the pair say they've definitely enjoyed their recent excursions into the MCU, unsettling paranormal puzzles made on a dime and completely under their control are where they say their hearts truly lie. Which is why when the pandemic struck and the world was thrown into lockdown, they began planning a supernatural mystery that they could shoot in Benson's apartment, star in themselves as they often do in their films, 
and craft almost exclusively alone. The resulting movie, Something in the Dirt, is their most compelling film to date and tells the tale of two neighbors, John and Levi, who are drawn into an unlikely friendship by an unexplainable phenomenon taking place in their apartment block. But can John and Levi trust each other as revelations about their secretive lives follow them down a rabbit hole into the unknown? It really is such a brilliant film, which is why I had a blast meeting with Benson and Moorhead while they were in London filming Loki season two. The duo told me about their writing habits, the creative crossovers between their films and Donald Glover's Atlanta, the brutal truths about working with bigger budgets and how that impacts your creativity, not always for the better, and something in the dirt's parallels to QAnon and other corrosive conspiracy theories. Like all their films, Something in the Dirt really is such an intriguing jigsaw of a movie. So as you can imagine, I had a ton of fun decoding it with Justin and Aaron. Now, as you may have already guessed, this is a spoiler-filled conversation. So if you're yet to see Something in the Dirt, please do hit pause now, watch the film. You can find it on Hulu if you're listening from the US or video on demand if you're in the UK. Then come back as we dive into every detail of this brilliant movie. Before we go any further, a quick reminder that if you like what we do and want to help the show continue to grow, you can now support Script Apart on Patreon. Yes, for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you can subscribe and get all sorts of bonus content. Producer Cam and I recently launched a new video series of bonus segments on there called Postscript, in which after recording an episode, the two of us have a fun, casual debrief about the things we loved learning about and some of our big takeaways from the conversation. You'll also receive ad-free episodes, early access to those episodes, and the chance to put your questions to upcoming guests. What's not to love? If you'd like to support, get involved by heading to patreon.com forward slash script apart. We really do appreciate your support. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into it, shall we? This is the incredible Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead discussing the first draft secrets of Something in the Dirt. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, welcome to Script Apart. Huge congratulations on Something in the Dirt, guys. Um, I believe there's a nickname for this project, Pineapple Express, as in pie napple Pie being a reference to the dark, paranoid Aronofsky thriller, Pineapple Express being kind of a reference to the, the stoner comedy that exists also within this film. Um, there's a tradition in your work for two movies kind of existing on top of each other, dovetailing into one. The Endless was a time loop movie, but it was also a brotherly drama. Spring was kind of structured like a romantic coming of age movie with a very bloody meat cute in it. Um, can you tell me about that tradition in your work and uh, yeah, how something in the dirt fits into it? Yeah, we, we never even discuss typically what genre we're working in specifically or even subgenre or anything like that. We've been really, really, really privileged in that we could just basically follow all of our instincts of anything we ever wanted to do. So if we think a moment can be funny, we can follow that. If we think it could be scary, we follow that. If we think it's a great dramatic moment, we've been able to follow it. We've never had anyone saying like, hey, you, you, you realize this is a horror film, you gotta have these beats, or you realize this is a comedy or a romantic comedy, or, or, or a, <laughs> you're making an Oscar drama, guys, you gotta do this thing. <laughs> Luckily, we've never been in this position. Um, something really interesting the other day, uh, Aaron and I were, were huge fans of Atlanta and not to compare our work to like one of the greatest artistic achievements of our lifetimes, which is Atlanta in any way. But someone said, they said, um, 
I heard those guys, I heard the way they make it is they write it as a comedy and they shoot it as a drama. And I don't know if we necessarily even do that, but there is something too, like, I bet people do read these scripts we have and they go like, oh, this is, this is uh, kind of like a romantic comedy that's not funny as Spring was described. <laughs> and then we go and shoot it. And, 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 it, and it actually is. You watch it with an audience, you get some great laughs and, and, uh, and, and there's an unsettling feel, feel to it. So I wonder if we're just like taking these scripts that don't read as being one thing and then pushing our own instincts on the day on it. Yeah, there's there's also, there's a marrying all the time of like the extremely personal things that we'll be uh, diving into. Normally a relationship, a, a two-person relationship um, and, a, uh, and then some kind of theme. And then actually probably right in the middle is like a sci-fi idea. And they all come from the same thing. You know, The Endless is, a, is kind of the cleanest example I can think of, but something in the dirt does the exact same thing. Where, um, you know, the endless is like we're talking about the power dynamics of control and and when when you let go and who you are controlling and being controlled by. You have a sci-fi thing where there's this deity who's controlling and literally making you relive it until you do it right. Um, and then you have a, a brotherly relationship where one is dominating the other and the other one kind of takes it until he can't anymore. And these these ideas are all the same idea, but they can, as, as you were saying, they can feel, they could technically be two separate movies if you wanted to chase one or the other. You can make just a time loop movie or just a movie about brothers um, figuring out their dynamic. Um, it just works for best for us when all of these things are married to each other. And in addition to that marriage, what would you say are some of the other traditions of your films at this point? Like the films are all incredibly varied, but there are they are connected in a lot of ways, often narratively. Um, are, are there certain recurrent elements in your filmmaking that you think has become like a signature of your, of your storytelling style? People talk a lot. There's a lot of dialogue. Um, it's funny, I'll sometimes hear the term uh, a slow burn applied to them. However, when I think about slow burn in terms of like my own definition, I wouldn't necessarily describe our movies that way. Yeah. I think it more like, oh, like Ty West stuff where it's like it, there's long, quiet builds up, build ups to things. Whereas ours are like, nah, people are just constantly talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, <laughs> uh, what else? There was, there was a fun thing that, that some tradition that something in the dirt broke where almost everything seemed to take place over approximately seven days. Sometimes extremely literally and sometimes just, just roughly. No reason for that. Never said like, all right, we're going to do seven days, uh, except for resolution where he says seven days yeah. until. Um, Sometimes we're looking for reasons for people to not have not change their clothes. Yeah. <laughs> like seriously, like it's a production concern. Like, yeah. It honestly with something in the dirt, we were changing our clothes three times a day and it was horrible. It was horrible <laughs> because we'd have to run off and break it, you know, break everything down, demic ourselves, yeah. change into another piece of clothing, you know, remic ourselves, come back up, practice, you know, it's no fun. It, and actually I remember that was one intentional thing in the development of something in the dirt is that we would try our hand at telling a decompressed story mm-hmm. where it was like, oh, it's going to take place over a year. And that's, there was something exciting dramatically about doing that as opposed to it being another week. Yeah. And that, that was lives. a very purposeful thing. That's why scenes take place at Halloween and Christmas and all of that. So you can actually see time passing without having to have a title card of how much time has passed. Um, 
and and you know you kind of show how these phenomena and the and the relationship dynamics have worn on the characters over months rather than just a week you know of of them getting to know each other. Yeah. Uh, what else is there? There's there's more. There's kind of, I mean the Lovecraftian thing. Yeah. There's that. The, we we never we when we started it was shamefully long until we got ourselves educated on Lovecraft. Um, uh, after spring, really, uh, was when we were like, all right, let's figure out why people call our films Lovecraft. <laughs> Started reading the <laughs> literature and realized, oh, yes, we stand on this man's shoulders, you know. I was, there, there's obviously, there's a, there's our sort of otherworldly antagonist in the Endless Resolution universe that very intentionally was always supposed to be something that was kind of older than written human myth. And the reason for that was always just like, well, like, it's harder to rationalize away something that is older than history, I guess. Whereas, and if you look at Spring, it's like, okay, she has some of the characteristics of the vampire myth, but she's something older than the vampire myth. And I think that always came from just a place of, uh, I, me, me personally, I was always, I was raised without religion. So anytime you, you, you placed Judeo-Christian anything into the mythology of a story, it immediately for me, it just like oh, I, my I couldn't get over my my uh, my suspension of disbelief. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Enough to be like, well, but that's just like a to me that was just a human invention. But but so to put it within a story, and I'm supposed to believe in the supernatural creature. I couldn't get on board with it. But uh, but in the case of Louise and Spring, and in the case of the antagonist and resolution, it was something older. And I thought psychologically there was something interesting about that, where I was like, oh, I can't I can't quite just point to that and be like, yeah, but that's just a story people made up. And, and thus, I found it more frightening in the development of that, of that mythology. Realized later that that is a big reason why people call our movies Lovecraftian, mm -hmm. was that. Um, and then and on top of all that, it was like, okay, you make these things nature-based. So, okay, now it has like a tentacle shows up and it's like, Lovecraft, <laughs> tentacles. <laughs> So this particular film was written and shot in the initial months of the pandemic. And, you know, it's it's funny to kind of look back with a bit of perspective now on, well, some of my personal responses to that time. Like, I went insane writing screenplay after screenplay. In reflection, I think, because, like, in times where you feel like you don't have control, like you feel a little bit helpless, storytelling gives you complete control. You're the god of this world that you're creating on the page. D does that tally with your experience of making something in the dirt? Uh, like, you know, it, it, it seems like you were really eager from, from what I've heard. As soon as COVID kind of happened, you set about making a film almost immediately. No, actually, the, the initial thought that we had, and there's a third person who's not here, David Lawson, part of our company, Rustic mm -hmm. Films. Um, and we, we all kind of pressed the pause button uh, because we had all these things in development that could not happen during COVID. And uh, I think everybody was waiting to see what the protocols would be when it opened back up. And we we thought, okay, um, a year from now, there's going to be this massive flood of movies about one person going crazy in their apartments, found footage, Zoom movies about isolation and loneliness. It's gonna be all the same movie. And there, it's just gonna be a flood of them because that's the only movie you can really make. <laughs> You know, and we thought we just don't have any story to tell in that space. And actually, by the way, there have been some amazing stories told in that space. But we knew we would be just behind the curve. <laughs> and um, and so we actually uh, waited, and, and we were thinking, 
we'll just be so ready to explode out of the gate with an independent film made traditionally um, right when this thing ends. And then, uh, and then the protocols for coming back to work came out and we realized that half of an independent film's budget would have to go towards the COVID protocols. But the audiences don't forgive you for being made during COVID. They don't care. Yeah. So, they, so your movie doesn't suddenly get twice as valuable uh, or, or like if it's less interesting because you had to obey these protocols and you couldn't get, I don't know, a crowd scene or something like that, um, nobody's, nobody forgives you for it. You just, it still just has to feel like a movie or it gets dismissed. So we re once we realized that and we'd kind of seen the numbers with the two of us and Dave, um, we still kept preparing our independent films that would happen when the protocols would become something more manageable on an independent film budget. But we th that was the moment for us. It was probably five months in, you know, that we said, all right, never mind. We actually need to buckle down and make a movie because there's no other way to make one right now. And it needs to be just two people, uh, uh, you know, and uh, the minimal crew. And actually, I don't know if you know this, but this film was made with the two of us and Dave and no one else in the apartment. There's so the camera work is if Justin's on camera, I'm holding it and <laughs> vice versa. And, uh, and we had a remote art department who would drop us props uh, when we weren't when we weren't there and we'd arrive and there would be a little exchange and um, and uh, and our editor was working remotely receiving that. But that was it. So, yeah, it wasn't yeah. actually till the second watch that I realized you guys aren't on screen together at all, basically. Yeah, yeah. We, we did have a tripod that helped us. So yeah. We did do a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah. So Synchronic, the movie you made before this one, that, that was quite a different film. And, um, you know, it, it was you guys seemingly on a trajectory to, to bigger productions, bigger sets, big A-list stars. And I'd kind of expected you to continue on that trajectory. And um, yeah, was, was kind of maybe uh, resigned to you guys using other actors and maybe not appearing in, in your own work as much anymore. Um, had you thought that, uh, was the plan always to oscillate between synchronic style productions where it's bigger and you guys are focusing on the writing and directing rather than the acting or was the plan to always kind of jump between projects like this to, to always come back and be able to do your own things like something in the dirt interesting it's funny it was kind of neither uh trying to like track the the evolution of how we got to synchronic was like uh we made Resolution, this $20,000 movie that somehow got into a big film festival, um, made in a total bottle, like without any, uh, no, 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 nothing like traditional development anyway. Same thing with Spring. Uh, and then after Spring, we couldn't get a job. <laughs> like, and it did pretty well, but like we were very unemployed for a while and then eventually realized, it's like, if we're gonna make another movie, we're just gonna have to do everything ourselves. So we made uh, The Endless. And then The Endless ended up opening some doors for us. And it allowed us to make Synchronic, but it was weird because Synchronic was written in 2016, uh, I'd say at least a year before The Endless was written. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time, there was, there was a few things going on. One was, uh, when in the making of Resolution and the making of Spring, there was like this thing where an idea of like, okay, could we develop something and could I write something that was more, that was more mainstream? 
that was like, oh, you could you could get it made. You could you could get it made with a bigger budget. And so there's lots of concerns coming in uh, about that. And we had developed things that had kind of just never come into fruition. Like they just didn't didn't happen. There was a movie about Aleister Crowley. There were a whole bunch of TV pilots. And there was all these things. We had taken a lot of notes from people. And I'd try to internalize the lessons of taking those notes and put them into a project we could get made. That again, hitting the small target of being mainstream and kind of being ourselves simultaneously. And that's basically what Synchronic was. But after we did it and we got it made, before going into writing something in the dirt, there was a realization that it was like, this movie's awesome, we're so proud of it. But we somehow kind of lost track of what we actually wanted to be doing. And I think that something in the dirt was that realization from the bottom up. It was, what do we really want to be doing? What are the stories we really want to be telling? And could we accomplish doing a more refined version of something like Resolution or Spring as opposed to trying to be something we're not? Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that's about? Yeah, that's about yeah. There was, there, and there's also one other piece of it, which is just the, um, there, there's a, uh, and it makes sense, there's a perception that Synchronic was this big budget movie. This, that was the most skin of our teeth movie ever. It was the lowest budget movie shooting in New Orleans at the time. We were like the 20th cheapest production or most, you know, it was, uh, it was something where we were, we were, we, here's a way to say it. It was, um, we wanted for more things on Synchronic than any of our independent films, you know, more, we needed more. It needed to be 10 times bigger, you know, really, if we were going to. So, so that was another thing where it was just like, this is, this is incredibly difficult, this yeah. kind of thing. Not the actual, like, fil- like big budget filmmaking. Obviously, we have no issues with <laughs> handling that. You know, it it's just means, like, independent films jumping from the hundreds of thousands into the low millions that that you might as well not make the jump. It needs to be the ten, the hundreds of thousands or the tens of millions. And by the way, we haven't been there exactly that exact spot. You know, the the arrival, you know, or the Green Knight kind of level. Yeah. Um, we've never been there, so you know, who knows? Maybe that's also impossible. Um, but it's weird, like the cost delta of all of those things actually is is shockingly uh, <laughs> less valuable than one might think. That's interesting. So something in the dirt was kind of a reset for you guys, then would you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was both a reset and then and but also definitely trying to be more refined with what we very specifically do and what with what we were most proud of. Um and and hopefully showing progress beyond Resolution Spring and the Endless. Um and the other the other weird thing about it too was like it was kind of a reaction also to realizing that in Synchronic being written in 2016, there were certain elements to that story that as of 2020, you could now consider to be like sort of um, new agey. <laughs> like, like where it was like, it literally had a story element that had to deal with like calcification of, a, of, a, of, of the pineal gland. Yeah. And it's like, yes, okay, there's some science there and it's interesting. And really it was inspired by From Beyond by Lovecraft. Yeah. 
but looking back on it, it was just kind of like, wow, I really hope people don't think that I'm gonna tr- that we're trying to sell them power crystals. You know, like, <laughs> and 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 again, I don't. Most people don't see it that way, but you can't help but just be like a little self conscious about it. Or that it's and, like an anti drug movie either, which yeah. is something that we don't actually litigate on. You know, at, in the movie or in our personal lives, it's it's that, and that was something where we just uh, it's. The drug of synchronic definitely is dangerous, but really what we found it was, wouldn't it be interesting if, and and slightly horrifying if, but it's not, you know, it's weird when you accidentally take something that is at, is a hot button topic, drugs, yeah. and you makes, make a movie about like something very specific, and no matter what, you seem to be commenting on the whole. Luckily, it seems like everybody got that, but it was like a weird line mm-hmm. to ride, so... Yeah, it must be strange and quite a difficult thing to negotiate. You know, when when you make a movie, it, it's out there then for people to perceive and interpret as they wish. And sometimes that's kind of wrestled out of your control, even as the storytellers. How does kind of something in the dirt fit into that? It sounds like there's already been quite a few interpretations of the film that may or may not tally up to, to what your intentions were. Oh, I think we're leaning harder into that than ever. So like with Synchro- all of our movies, Synchronic is the one I'm, I'm thinking of, but like, all I want to do is respond to everyone who got something a little bit wrong about it. You know, all I want to do, and of course, what you do is you shut up because you lose every argument you get into. Um, but uh, uh, with something in the dirt, we designed the movie uh, to be—we we needed it to be something that both had a strong sense of closure at the end and satisfaction, and it was also a movie that was about not finding the answer. And, and therefore, you don't really know what to trust and, and what you saw exactly. So we actually, the way that we do test screenings on our movies is we actually don't send it to random people or set up big theaters with a moderator. We send it to about 15 people that we know at a time that we know will be honest with us. And, um, and we have a little questionnaire or we'll have a phone call or something. And on our questionnaire was like, it was literally a multiple choice question. This is we're entering spo- spoiler territory, yeah. Oh yeah, this is okay. all spoilers. It said, um, "Which of the following do you believe to be true?" You know, and and it was um, everything depicted was real, everything depicted was false. Some was real. I'm sorry, uh, a small amount was falsified. Most was real. Most was falsified. A small amount was real, and then some kind of other describe. You know, and uh, and we. We stopped cutting the movie when the responses were all across the gamut. Like we were just like, okay, we know that everybody has a different thing because that's going to inspire some really interesting conversation after the movie. That's interesting. So what about the initial panic and anxiety of COVID that was kind of erupting at the time? Uh, What about that do you think you kind of brought through and were pulling from in this film? Like I, I feel like some of the film contains... The paranoia, the thirst for knowledge uh, and information of, of that time, and if, and it also contains like you know in some quarters there was unfortunately a lot of conviction that there was some sort of hidden truth being concealed. Like so, w- what do you think you were taking from that period and applying to this film, whether consciously or or subconsciously? Gosh, that's a really good question. I mean, one thing that was one thing that's kind of weird about that script itself and any information that's there in that page and getting expressed is that because we were, again, what, five minutes into COVID, mm-hmm. something like that? Um, and because we had nothing else to do, like production-wise, uh, I was writing a lot. I, like, I had written a 
<laughs> like like a two, like a really long pulp fiction esque uh, interconnected crime story in the world of the endless. <laughs> uh, we had started in on a. Uh, a story all about Byron from Resolution. It was yeah. like a whole big long treatment. There was, uh, uh, I finished writing a book uh, <laughs> that was like kind of about my relationship with my mother. And and uh, so anyways, all this is happening. So by the time you get to something in the dirt, um, as Aaron has this thing he said the other day that apparently I said at some other point, he was like, oh, you're scraping the side of the peanut jar. You're like you're kind of out of out of stuff, but but that stuff off the side of the peanut jar is usually your better stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there was that, but I just wonder. I guess what I'm getting at is, I wonder if I got out all the paranoia that would have come out in the writing, or like things, or paranoia, or anything that you would traditionally associate with COVID had already been like uh, like exercised, <laughs> and then you get to the script and it didn't really feel like it. However, there was something. Uh, that we were trying to do with the characters that might be related to COVID or maybe it was just our career trajectories. But it was this idea that like, oftentimes when we make movies, people will read them or watch them and be like, well, I'm not really sure who like the protagonist is. I'm not really sure who who the hero of the story is. And and so if you guys are aiming for that, yeah, you, you failed. Um, and we were never aiming for that. So it was always a concerning note where I was like, no, no, they're supposed to be like flawed humans, you know? And then people are like, okay, okay, where's the hero? <laughs> but, like, but this was a movie where it was like from the ground up, from, from word one, we were going to be sure that both these guys, Levi and John, were really flawed. And that there was clear that no one was trying to express them to be a hero. And that that would be in, intrinsic to the story. Um, and I don't know if that connects to COVID or not. Does that... Is, d- did that is can you say that that was like yeah we were all like looking at the flaws in each other more because we're all locked up I don't know maybe I, I I think it's a response to what we've to years of development to be honest that piece of it I I I think that it was just we were so tired of good guys and bad guys and stuff like particularly bad guys like ultimately good guys can be really interesting like Dale Cooper but but bad guys I just here. Here's the way to say it. We both agree on this. There is definitely pure evil in the world. There are people who are just bad people. Um, how they got there, who knows, you know. I don't understand them on any level whatsoever, and so I can't really tell a story about them. I need I need the bad guy to be, even if it's actually bad, I need to to generally come from a place where it's like everybody's actually good at their core and what they're doing makes sense if you're them. They are, they are not the bad guy in their own story. They don't just like pain. They don't just like hurting people. They aren't just like greedy and that's it. That's the end of it, you know. Um, for sure, those people do exist. I get it. Uh, but it do, they don't make any sense to me. And, and, uh, and, so, and, and I say me, I mean us. Like this is something where, so in our scripts that we're writing ourselves, it doesn't really work for us to have people that are, that are just reptiles you know um and uh and i think that also just helps generally make an instinct towards three-dimensional characters no matter what you know it has to be uh because um well it's inherent to what a three-dimensional character is so yeah it is one of the fun parts of the film you've you've essentially got two concurrent mysteries ongoing you've got the mystery that these this pair have come together to try and solve and make a documentary about You've also got the mystery of, of each each character trying to solve 
trying to understand the other and uncovering more information about their lives and you know um discovering that one of them's on the sex offense uh sex offenders registry and things like that how did that come about and at what point did you realize that uh you could kind of cross connect those two things from essentially from conception onward Mm -hmm. the, the the intent was always that the audience's allegiances at the beginning of the movie would be more uh, more probably with John and probably more judgmental against Levi and that Levi would feel, feel more, a bit more like he's going to be the villain of the film. Mm. Um, and then as the story progressed, there'd be a shift in those things where it'd be like, no, it's you, you start to develop more of an affection for Levi and that John starts to feel like more of a malevolent force in the film. And then then in the very end, they're both equally, equally vulnerable and equally flawed. That was always the intent. And it seems like that's what most people get out of it. But that was always like the big swing. That was like the thing is like, oh, could we pull that off? Could we get, could we get people to, to shift their, who, who they empathize with more and, and who they feel they relate with more as a human being? Shift those things roughly 50-50, but in the end, they're just two humans and with, with, with a lot of vulnerabilities. I just remembered the COVID thing. Sorry. I, I, there is one thing that's kind of like a, I, 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 I sorry, I'm going back one question. Sorry. <laughs> that's that's good, where my, my just went. It's the, um, uh, kind of what I was saying before is we really strongly didn't want to do anything that was related to COVID, what was happening. I knew it, really what it was is I think we were digging into ourselves and we're like, I don't want to watch a movie about a pandemic. I don't want to watch a movie about being locked up and isolated. Like, I don't want to watch it. So why am I going to make it? Um, even though I feel it. And, um, and even now, like I, I'm sure there's amazing pandemic movies that are going to come out. It's like, I'm just not going to see it right now. I'm just <laughs> not ready for it. Um, but we would very often, uh, uh, you know, one of our favorite uh, pastimes is late night um, dives down like a Wikipedia link rabbit hole or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there is definitely something. It's not about like the the pop culture or political culture prevalence of of conspiracy theory. Um, obviously, that's in the air somewhere, and that maybe is part of it. But that wasn't what we were aiming for. It was actually more about ourselves. About like, hey, just check yourself. Sometimes you're not right. You know, you just, you, you get these great, you get, you find out a bunch of information vertically about one thing, which is such a good visual for a rabbit hole. And so you, you draw your conclusion without noticing like what's in the breadth, the horizontal of, of everything. Um, and that was really what one, one thing that was very much in the air, maybe not at COVID, but, it, but at that time, um, but it was, it was, it's also been in the air forever. You know, just like just general lack of critical thinking and conviction that you're right. You know, it's kind of checking ourselves, being like, yeah, you're not. We there's things we just we talk about this all the time. The UFO thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say that yeah. there's actually you just made me realize something. There, there is to get very specific. There is one COVID specific thing that John and Levi do throughout the movie. Uh, and it's like they get way too much information from the internet. 
Yeah. yeah. And when you talk about things being too vertical, too narrow, like they, they, th- those, these two guys need to go somewhere else for their information. <laughs> besides, and talk to more people than each other. Than each yeah, other. Yeah. yeah. And that was always intentional. And it's, it's a funny joke to see them like, you know, yeah. mystery comes up, tap, 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 tap. They're like immediately searching their phones. But that's something we were all do during, doing during COVID. We were also doing it prior to COVID and we're still doing it now. Right. Yeah. Constantly referencing their sources as if they're like, oh, there's this podcast I listen to. Oh, I read on a message board. And it's like, they're referencing their sources as if it's an appeal to authority, which is a, a classic fallacy. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. It's just another person said it. And, and <laughs> there's, there, there are ways to academically check your sources and these guys were not doing it. So, <laughs> so on the subject of um, conspiracy theories, the, the, there's an Alan Moore quote on the first page of the screenplay. The main thing I've learned about conspiracy theorists is that conspiracy theorists believe in a conspiracy because it's comforting. The truth is more frightening. Nobody is in control. What do these words mean to you? And uh, yeah, how did they help guide you in making something in the dirt? Like, what is it that is comforting about this conspiracy that, uh, you know, might help these characters in avoiding something they don't want to confront? That, that Alan Morkwell was actually the thesis for the movie, essentially, for us. And, and it was just that that we both held the belief that um, that conspiracies usually just aren't real and they're usually oddly just sources of comfort for us as human beings. Well, it's exactly the quote. It's like, when, when, when in actuality, no one is in control and that's the scary thing. We, we worked with this wonderful uh, um, uh, comic writer named Matt Pizzolo and, uh, and he kind of opened our eyes to it and said it in such a nice way. Um, he runs Black Mask Comics and, and yeah. a very subversive comic company. Um, but he's kind of like, isn't it more realistic that instead of all the rich people conspiring against us, that they all fight each other, that they can't get along? That's, and, it's, and it was like a light bulb moment. It's like, that makes so much more sense. No one's in control. Of course, these kind of th- like agreements happen without being announced, all of that. But... Um, but things that are so massive that it requires 10,000 people to stay quiet, no, probably, it, like much more likely that that's not the case. Um, and there's, there's gonna be some other explanation. But what's interesting is, is sometimes there isn't a good theory um, for, for what it is. Uh, and that's, that's a, a fun place to be. We're talk, we've been talking a lot about UFOs recently um, because you know they're, they've been disclosed in Congress and all that kind of fun stuff. And by the way, we don't have a theory. We're not saying it on the podcast. We don't don't say that we said it. This is this is just for fun, you know, because they are fun to, to, to look into. But what's really interesting about it is, uh, even though it's being taken rather seriously by legitimate people, which is a pretty new thing, um, there is not even an actually good working theory that doesn't have a bunch of holes. That's pretty incredible, and and so I guess my point, by the way, is. We're living in a place where we have to accept we don't have a theory, and it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Keep keep exploring. Just don't be certain. You know, it's okay to not be certain. We need to be comfortable with that. But that's it. Is like the certainty is comfortable, and that's what the conspiracy theory brings comfort. That's what Alan Moore is talking about, and and the unknowable, which is where all of our movies live, and what we were exploring, or not unknowable, the unknown. Let's just say that not yet known, perhaps. Uh, that's not comfortable inherently, but it can be. You know, that's that's kind of what the movie's about. And in in the end, uh, certainty is John's curse. That's mm-hmm. that that is John's tragedy. In the end, is that he's is that he's certain, or he 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 he's uh, 
he is he is dead set on being certain at a certain point <laughs> and and that and that Levi's curse was that he realized too late that that was the case he, he realized too late that the pursuit of certainty was a curse and um and uh, and and that's the way these two guys each meet their tragedies um, we're not short of conspiracy theories to to draw on over the last few years were there any in particular that uh, you used as reference points where you just dis- discussed amongst yourselves as you kind of made this film about the allure of the conspiracy theory? Well, you know, what's funny is you start to realize that as, as, uh, as authors of sci-fi fiction, that you are both, um, you're, you're both kind of creating your own conspiracy theories and and you're also um, inheriting inheriting the conspiracy theories of others, and the, the the line between a science fiction mythology and telling that story and a conspiracy theory it gets really blurry sometimes because they literally both use each other, the the the, the storytellers and the conspiracy theorists. Yeah, yeah. There's some conspiracy theorists you listen to like that. This person should write a, uh, a like a fiction book. Like this is this is amazing. And sometimes uh, they do. And sometimes they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's weird to, it is. And by the way, that also takes us back to synchronic actually. And that again, it, there are elements to that story, actually our prior movies too, where no doubt they share some ideas of conspiracy theories that we would very much disagree with. It's a weird um, feeling. <laughs> and, in particular, also there were, we we just kind of ran the gamut of like much older ones, specifically like um, uh, the Pythagorean cult. Is yeah. act, that's actually it's a very old, pretty harmless because it's not active at all today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, conspiracy theory, um, and then there's uh, the Laurel Canyon conspiracy, which is kind of fun. You know, the the, the surrounding the, all the deaths and the CIA's involvement with a bunch yeah, of people yeah. and and acid in um, the 60s and 70s, uh, everybody that's living during that time. We didn't really mess with it that much. I think there's one sentence about it in the film, but it's uh, but we don't treat it as a conspiracy theory. We just kind of like bring it up as a bit of a dog whistle to people who know that there is something called the Laurel Canyon conspiracy. <clears throat> but we we found them all and kind of, we tried not to put many modern day ones in because it, we weren't commenting on um, we we're commenting on something that's relatively universal. It's yeah. you know they've been around forever. So yeah. yeah. So we we spent years developing uh, a movie and then a TV show about Aleister Crowley, yeah, the turn of the century occultist, and that's another that's another fertile ground in storytelling for running into conspiracy theories. You know everything from he was related to Barbara Bush to. Oh, I haven't uh, heard that one. Oh, oh yes, yeah, oh, yes, yeah. Yes, that one's all over the internet. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. To, I mean, it, he's actually, to be honest, he's kind of he he might be connected to like ninety nine percent of conspiracy theories in some way. You can find some way to connect him to it, <laughs> which is of his own doing because he he kind of built this own mythology for himself in his own time because he was kind of a an early version of an expert PR guy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's a bit of a, a boogeyman of anything that can be related to the occult and all conspiracies end up going back to the occult on a long enough timeline. So, 
Because the, the occult is a boogeyman as well, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very real. I just mean that um, people who aren't into it very often like to point towards it as, as a kind of an easy bad guy. And it has been, of course, pointed towards in, in cinema history, you know, time and time again. Were there particular films that were reference points for you guys, either in terms of, you know, the mystery of the film, the sort of conspiracy theorist subject matter of the film, the LA-ness of it all? Like, uh, you know, I need to see this movie in a double bill with Under the Silver Lake by David Robert Mitchell. I love that um, movie, by the way. Yeah. I so just great. saw it kind of recently. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah like, a couple, like a couple months ago. And I, I immediately texted David and, and the... And the DP, who's an old friend, it's just spectacular. Yeah. I love that movie. There's, I don't know whether it is because these are two such quintessential LA movies, but they do kind of complement each other really nicely. They do. Yeah, yeah they really do. So what, what were the reference points for you guys, filmically? Well, here's some weird things. Okay, I haven't seen Under the Silver Lake. I actually haven't seen Pie, though I make the joke, Pineapple Express, because <laughs> I know what it is. I've seen the trailer. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, I think Aaron's pulling apart. I'm pulling up a list. Yeah. Here's a well. Here's a weird one. Um, the Big Lebowski. Yes. No way. Yeah. The Big, Big Lebowski. Time. And some of it, it was funny. Some of it was like the spirit of Levi's hair, where it was like <laughs> it'll just look absurd, but it's it it's that idea of like you know, we could we could have this oddball humor in the way these guys visually appear, and that would be fun. Um, God, what were what um, were our? Okay. Here we go. Uh, Lake Lake Mungo was like a there's a little bit of that in there. Okay. It's like yeah, a faux yeah. documentary. Oh, good. Aaron has a list. Yeah, Errol Morris documentaries. Yeah, that was a big one. Big <laughs> big one. Yeah. The, the looking into camera testimonial. Well, you actually reference that specifically in the script. Oh in yeah, the yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, let's see here. <laughs> what oh. we what we do in the shadows? Yeah. Again, referenced in the script. Is it? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> the um, uh, do you guys do you guys know there's this place in Los Angeles? I don't know if it's still around called the uh, the Museum of Jurassic, Jurassic Technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that place uh, for for those listening is is essentially it's a little museum uh, on the west side where um, it's like four stories tall. On the top is a little tea room, and in it is just this very bizarre. Um, uh, exhibitions, series of exhibitions, uh, and they can be about anything. Um, often, I think related to Americana, but I think it could be almost anything. And as you ascend the museum, you start to realize that some percentage of this museum is just fake, like deliberately fake, and to to make you laugh. Like, but it but it's treated pretty seriously. Um, and uh, and so I think the idea of you don't really know what's real and what's fake in this museum, but you know you're being presented something, um, as opposed to um, something that's fully deadpan, like a like like Mungo, yeah, fully like fully like you don't question it, even though you do know that it is fake because it's a movie. Um, I think we really we were inspired by that general idea. Yeah, a, a big one in the dynamic between John and Levi was uh, Breaking Bad. Yeah. Where where John's obviously more of the Walt and Levi's more of the Jesse. Um, I think in, in the case of something in the dirt, uh, John isn't as self-aware as Walt is about how much he manipulates Jesse, but he's clearly at least unconsciously manipulating Levi. Mm-hmm. Um, There's uh, also, uh, this is kind of funny, I... Uh, I, I based John's look off of, uh, um, you know, John is a guy who... Um, thinks the coolest thing in the world would probably be to be um, 
some kind of a, a, a lone soldier fighting his last battle. Something yeah. like that, you know, like like hold, the holdout. Something like, he. Prob- that's probably what he thinks is the pinnacle of cool. Um, but he also probably finds himself, like probably uh, thinks that, but for life circumstances, he would be someone like Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Just like a brilliant, a brilliant mind. Um, and uh, the, uh, so I actually modeled him after Oscar Isaac's character in Ex Machina. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, who kind of also has that the same like glasses. A, yeah, it's yeah, almost yeah. exactly the same. Those are actually my fiance's glasses. I just put them on one day. I was like, "This is perfect," and so I bought another pair for the movie. The first three days of filming, I was we didn't yet have Costco didn't have the ones that just had um, non-corrective lenses yeah. in yet. So I had to wear her actual glasses, and I couldn't see anything. So half the takes, I took it off and then forgot to put it back on. And we had to reshoot it because I wasn't wearing my glasses. But man, isn't that how um, conspiracy theorists always self-mythologize? They always think of themselves as like free thinkers and lone soldiers against, you know, speaking the truth that no one dares speak. Like that is how like, I don't know whether these guys were a reference point for you guys, but like the the QAnon crowd, that's very much like their their self-mythology. You know what's so weird is... It was that was never a thing in the development of the movie, and that still isn't for us have anything to. It, there was never any intent for it to be a commentary on that in any yeah. way. Yeah. Um, and in fact, if we did that, it would be kind of othering people that need like everybody needs to like this is a movie that is about everyone's issues yeah. here. Yeah. This is about the human propensity to dive down a rabbit hole, and uh, and it's not about any one thing that's in the zeitgeist. I think. Yeah. It was also, what's weird too is it, I guess it's not weird, but it's worth to mention that this movie was totally in the can before January 6th. Mm-hmm. If, and if you, and not to like say, like say January 6th is only a result of something like QAnon, but no one would argue that it's not the result to some extent of conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the movie was made well before the events of that and not meant to be commentary on that in any way. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. If you've written a script and are wondering what step to take next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources for emerging writers, like virtual events where your questions are answered by leading Hollywood professionals, it's also the industry's number one script coverage service. With incredible 72-hour turnaround and format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, We Screenplay is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from first-time writers to Oscar winners. So if your script is ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of their real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay wants to help. Head to wescreenplay.com to find out more or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and dare I say beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. 
Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash gripped apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. The first draft, how did that compare to, to the film that it became? Like, give me the overview of what that first, how that first draft was written, how quickly, and then, yeah, any differences between the first draft and, and the shooting script that I've read? They're not that much different. Mm-mm. Yeah, it was Mm-mm. pretty much, it was funny. We were, I was digging through early documents of us brainstorming this movie the other day in preparation for this. So I'd have a good answer for this question. And the best answer I can come up with is what's interesting is that there's literally like in these sort of stream of consciousness uh, brainstorming documents we're sending back and forth. Someone would say like, and then it'd be like, if Sarah Dina Smith said this line, and it's literally in the movie, Sarah Dina Smith saying that line. And then it's like, and I think something, and then it's like, it's like they're digging for something in the dirt. Isn't that a nice title? Something in the dirt? Anyways. So, and, and it's like literally, the, it's all in these, these documents and then, and then it shows up. But it's, there is a weird thing with our movies, and I don't know why this is, but they do tend to be uh, way more similar to their scripts than probably most independent films. And um, I don't know why that is, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that there is an assumption oftentimes, especially in independent film, that there is more of a fluidity to everything, especially when you get to set. Yeah. And I think some of that's just like, oh, it's, you know, um, uh, Mumblecore was a thing not that long ago in independent film. And independent films typically feature naturalistic performances. and. This is a tradition going back really far, but if even farther than this, but you look at something like the Linklater, Linklater films, like before yeah. sun, whether it's before sunrise or it's days and confused, um, those movies are heavily rehearsed and scripted. But I think we watch them and we think because, because they feel so much more naturalistic than like a studio film, that we tend to think like it must be improvised. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's it's mm. not, it's not really. And I think that's part of the reason why there's a presumption that our that our scripts would be a lot different than our movies. Um, spring is almost word for word the same yeah. the same thing. Something that actually there's a version of the movie that is almost word for word the the script that you read. Yeah. Unfortunately, that movie was three and a half hours long. <laughs> well, also we didn't we we didn't like treat our dialogue as like pitter patter, you know, yeah. very much. It wasn't a lot of like quick back and forth. And so, you know, a great example is there's the climactic argument at the end where the tear each other down or really John's kind of just eviscerating uh, Levi but um, uh, you know the dailies for that scene is 10 minutes per take it's three and a half pages on the script and we're just and it's it's just that the we're just saying what's in the dialogue you know of the script but um, but we were taking our time with it a little bit to let it sit a little bit more and that was that's kind of just all over what you read, I think you also probably noticed, is kind of like the middle. There's just so much more in the middle than is in the actual final product of the film. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem is it's just it was it was all we we loved it all. And it's three and a half hours long. And there's a lot of deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the hardest to cut? You mean most difficult or uh, sorry, the most difficult scene to figure out? Or do you mean like the, the one that had to go? The thing that you had to remove from the movie so that it wasn't three and a half hours long. That was just yeah. you were sad to see go. OK, I think one of my favorites was uh, there was this. 
There was a subplot of the person who had been murdered next door. Their ex-lover had set up camp out in front of John's apartment, and he had this ongoing like thing with going by them in a in, a, in like their tent out front. And it was John John having no idea how to deal with this person that he should be being more sensitive towards for a number of reasons, and um, and uh, and I'm like just calling the city of LA, LA like, and not not. <laughs> it was, you know, yeah. And it was just pretending it was just I don't funny. speak English, like just yeah, like a he terrible pretends, dude. He pretends like, he doesn't speak English. It's like this, like it was. It's too bad. It is actually very funny, but we. It was one. It was one of many things. I was like, oh, this is just way too long. And and then the um, there was like this whole scene at Christmas that is now just like two two quick edits now of yeah. of when well, I think it's when Levi now is like per, he's professing in his phone. I have to say goodbye and mm-hmm. and we, we so we use that those the shots from Christmas that very clearly Levi's wearing a Santa hat, John's wearing elf ears, but for a reason I'll get into. But those are just quick little images now to just show the passage of time. Mm-hmm. But originally that was a scene. Where um, Levi is telling John, like, "Hey, I, you know, I, I'm sorry. I, I really got to go." And John has just been working a wedding where he had to get dressed up as an elf, and he's like really upset about it. And then, and then, like, he gets even more upset when Levi's when when he realizes like they had gotten DMT to do together, and like, and, like he's like, "We haven't even tried it yet." And like, <laughs> and, and Levi's like, "I don't think we are two people that should do DMT together." <laughs> <laughs> And actually, there's also something that starts off the scene because this was right after all the phenomenon had just kind of dried up. And so John's getting more and more desperate. Um, and Levi's planning his exit as, you know, he's saying, I got to go. So you, there's the scene begins um, first by telling the audience that it's Christmas in a very bizarre way. But um, but then you start realizing that they've just tried everything. And there's this great, like, just shot that we had to cut. I think is actually a photograph in the credits. Mm-hmm. But there was a shot that we had to cut of um, a Ouija board um, that they, clearly they'd just tried to see if it would come back, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then a book, How to Get Abducted by Ultra Terrestrials. Um, like, clearly, they, like, all these discarded things that didn't work. And, yeah. But it's just in one shot, it just tells, like, what they've been doing for the last month, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, all, and it was fun. John, John yelled, I think, for the only time in the movie during that. He started throwing stuff and kind of made Levi scared. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, I could very much imagine, uh, or it, w- it wouldn't surprise me to learn that the starting point for the film, the, the sort of genesis of the idea was if there was to be this unexplained phenomenon, like the randomness of the universe dictates that it could very well happen to these two guys who are completely unequipped really to to be able to figure it out. And um, yeah, what was the genesis? Like wh- where did you begin with the idea and, and um, how did you construct the characters around around what they the, the mystery they were going to have to be solving we always we always knew from the beginning that we we're you know almost certain something call it supernatural call it otherworldly call it just a big old mystery something happened to these guys they did observe it um it's just that they get so obsessed with again, like we we're talking about, like wanting certainty, that they go so far off course that they maybe missed one of the most profound things to happen to human beings. Mm-hmm. Among them, that's just not not they're not the only ones, but like profound things happen to people all the time, and then they they spin out with their theories of what it was, and we completely lose track of it. And it probably was amazing um, that this thing actually happened to them, uh, and that what happened to them 
the the phenomenon itself uh, would would likely be um, uh, uh, let's just say entity or entities that share some of the same relationship that they have, mm-hmm. um, but expressed through gravity and electromagnetism. Yeah. We didn't know it would be exactly that yet, you yeah. know, in the very first, but but we knew that one way or another actually I think our our first thing was that it was one entity that expressed itself different Mm -hmm. ways and then we had our our people kind of like we decided we'd actually have our um have our characters kind of like pick their team in a way or get their teams picked for them like one is gravity one's electromagnetism and we can just see how those play uh and that actually kind of goes all the way back to your first question too about like how the sci-fi and the thematic elements live in with the the character pieces of it too um the uh there was yeah actually that kind of was the genesis really like it was oh i just sorry rewinding just a little bit um we'd been asked to reboot a major haunted house franchise and we just didn't have much interest yeah a few few different ones yeah yeah but it was it was (laughs) it was a day that it had happened and rewatched it and we're like okay we're not going to do this but we're like what would happen if we did do this and like there's obviously nothing in common with this and haunted, major haunted house franchises, you know, um, but we we're like, all right, what would it look like for us to do that? And that was kind of like our, a bit of our gauntlet being thrown down and uh, to uh, to figure out. But um, but it was more like for us, if a ha- if a house were haunted, which the characters believe it is initially, um, what would the two of us do? Now, of course, we are playing characters that are nothing like ourselves, but like people that we would respect. Because I think, I think we would be like, this is the most profound thing that's ever happened to me. Uh, this is incredible. There's an afterlife. This is amazing, and um, and and would want to study it. Um, we have two characters that want to study it and make money off of it. But um, the uh, but that I think that idea generally of of never having seen a haunted house movie where people are just seeing profundity and dollar signs rather than fear. Yeah. That that was interesting to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to dive into a few pages from the script, uh, the film begins in the blue glow of dawn, an odd closet door is open just enough to see the darkness beyond it. A beat up backpack and guitar rest near the threshold. Decrepit water damaged stains a rectangular, a rectangular patch of drywall in the ceiling above. On the other side of the otherwise empty room, a mess of dirty blonde hair protrudes from a full sleeping bag. Barely awake, lanky tattooed limbs crawling out is Levi. Two-day stubble and tired eyes flanked by that long blonde hair. He resembles a failed version of Kurt Cobain that lived 15 years longer than he wanted. So I just want to kind of dial in on these characters for a second. Like, who was Levi to you guys? How did you kind of shape him? Levi was a guy who had moved to Los Angeles about a couple decades prior. And didn't he kind of showed up and was like, hey, I like Thai food. This is a really good Thai food here. And had some idea that it would lead him somewhere in, in, in his life. And, and maybe that would be some sort of career in, in whether it would be like the music business. He could probably see himself as like a music engineer. He might see himself as, uh, as, as anything from working as an extra to like a day player actor or something. But not ultimately having like huge godlike goals. Um, and that uh, that he just tried all these things and nothing ever worked out. 
And then he kind of blames the universe for it, or he, he, he taking it back to like, what do they share in common with these entities? He uses this metaphor of gravity, like he has this gravity on him that he can't achieve anything he ever wanted to. But the reality is, is he just doesn't have any follow through. He never really stuck with anything and he blames the universe instead of kind of blaming himself. And, and he, but also too, I've always had in mind that it was like, even if he had stuck with something and he didn't achieve, like he didn't become what people traditionally call professionally successful, that it wouldn't matter and he'd ha- he would have had more peace with that. And that like, and people, people can admire that and be like, this guy's like really like, like, what are you talking about? Like, oh, a skateboard apparel company or whatever. It's like, if he had just done that and stuck with it, even if he didn't make it, he would have had more peace with himself and other people would have had probably more, maybe more respect for him. It should also simultaneously be said that like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a career bartender. And, and I think he, he more or less points that out. Yeah. And also it should be said that in LA, he could arguably may, be making like six figures a year at this job. Um, and that's something we talked about. And I was like, even if he was, he's like not good with money. <laughs> like, like, and also it's, it's a, it's a thing where it's like, people are just not their job. Some people, some people are. And then, and that's a lot of the, the, the dialogue that we all have to talk about each other as valuable people. But, uh, but there's, I would say probably upwards of 90% of people are doing their jobs so that they can spend more valuable time with their family. And I think that's actually a lot of the time more valid than, than chasing, making an impact on the world. Yeah. Exactly. And also in, in just to sum up, but in all of that, he kind of had let one event define his entire life. And, and that was another big tragedy in him that this, this thing that had happened with his sister had ended up, had ended up being, um, like really the own it, it 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 defined everything and set forth his path from forward and that it was it was all led by that when it should have been about other things yeah and john in the meantime is a 30 something with a buzzed head above a face that almost never looks unfriendly had he stayed in academia he'd have been the jc professor who fake grins at all the dumb questions his sh- his suit shirt has big bloody stains, but usually he's a well-groomed Walter White-esque misanthrope. Levi is all bright solids and verbal waste. John is conservative patterns and thoughtful observation, often rubbing the stubble of his shaved head as his blue eyes process. They both smile too much, but for different reasons. So I'm curious to know, like, when you create characters, because, I mean, what's what's fascinating about this film is there's there's character moments and storytelling everywhere. Like even in the camera work, because each, each character is filming each other, even in the ways they frame each other, that's revealing of who they are and uh, what their priorities are, what they consider important. When you're, when you've got your big sci-fi idea and you start to work in characters, what are you looking for in terms of things that can uh, connect with or uh, yeah, interact with that sci-fi element? Hmm. Well, maybe also, it's someone else. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking it's a very good question. Said, yeah. that, but there's also uh, as something else you said. You were saying how the they how they frame each other is an extension of their character. Um, that is true. That was something we talked a lot about. Uh, but the inspiration for that is probably pretty unexpected. A big inspiration for that was uh, Mark Duplass's uh, Creep. Oh um, no way! Um, and Creep Two, actually, and Creep I think 2, in particular, yeah. where. Yeah. where uh, um, there's a scene, I believe, where, uh, is it Desiree Akinen? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, where Desiree it's, it's Akhavan, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Where, where where uh they each have to strip down naked in front of each other and they both frame each other completely differently doing mm-hmm. the same action and yeah. uh and that exact moment is is a big piece of why we did that. Um what was what was the question by the way? Sorry about that. It was that. just do you I'm kind of it's kind of a chicken and the egg question. Do you start with the sci-fi element and then think who would be great pe- like what are the sort of character details like the parts of their backstory, the parts of their lives that would make them interesting people to undergo this experience? Or uh, do you have these characters then build in the sci-fi element? Yeah, uh, to be honest, I think the sci-fi idea came first in this case. Uh, and the, the characters came quickly after because we knew we would be playing them. Inherent to, before there was, hey, should we make a movie? There was, uh, it was, the, the thing is, is, we should make a movie and we should be in it. So there was at least like something going on that, where we knew that at least the gender and, and you know, <laughs> ethnic makeup of the characters. Actually, that was the same thing with with resolution. The sci-fi concept came first, then the characters. Spring was definitely the sci-fi concept came first, then the characters, and then the endless. The characters came first. That was then this is like the only one where the characters came first because we just knew we wanted to explore these guys that were in this supposedly a UFO death cult. The time loops thing came last. Yeah. Like if you see if you read the first documents about the time loops thing, it is like one sentence among many. Like it was not even like the main premise. It was like, yeah, they go back to the cult. These strange things are happening. There's this entity that does stuff. Yeah. But we didn't know what the stuff was exactly. Um, but yeah, yeah, the, the the central premise of time loops not was just kind of an afterthought in the in the very first conception. That's interesting. Yeah. So in, in these early pages, there's a lot of kind of references to uh, sort of this or, or signifiers, I suppose, of disaster. Like the script mentions the apocalyptic black smoke of a summer fire in the distance. And there are all these teasers throughout the film of like an un- unseen apocalypse that's kind of happening beyond the frame. Um, yeah. Can, can you guys tell me about that? Like uh, how literal is, th- is that meant? To be? In, for example, that scene where they discuss the end of the world. How, how literal are we talking there? Or is that kind of referencing kind of climate change and the general feeling of, of the world not being in a great state? Uh, well, actually, it's funny. The, um, the verbiage in the script is probably, not, not the dialogue, not what, we're, what the characters are talking about, is probably actually more about tone, uh, where the good news is, we were talking about this the other day with our, our cinematographer on Loki, where the, um, uh, we write camera direction and, and mood into our scripts much more than, than others would because uh, we're just writing it as notes to ourselves. But also, hopefully, the reader it gets the feeling of what it's supposed to feel like yeah, rather than, yeah. and, and because we're not going to hand it off to another director to interpret. And so, uh, so that kind of apocalyptic language was, kind of, was the horror element of the script, of this feeling that this is not going to end well. Uh, we do that on all of our movies, to be honest. It's a cheap <laughs> trick, but but it is how we it's it's how we actually uh, you know build our our tension and our mood. Um, as for the apocalyptic language, uh, it's actually more. It's not how we in particular feel all the time. It's it's a it is definitely zeitgeisty, but it's I mean it's been in the zeitgeist forever. Like every the, there's always been some kind of apocalyptic thing uh, around the corner. Maybe now more than ever, <laughs> to be honest. But uh... also, uh, in you know, in Los Angeles, being essentially a character in the story, a big part of Los Angeles' character now is its fires. Unfortunately, um, 
so it was a it was a thing that was tonally very effective to start out the movie a, a very interesting visual something that left unexplained would be sort of mysterious and unsettling um and once you realize what it is it's you know it's not like something supernatural is happening but it's this real life horrific thing that is that has become part of life in los angeles um and again just as many things as we could do to give los angeles uh character that's that that's honest because it is such an interesting place that doesn't get to express itself as itself very often oh and also it was written as a visual effect that we can do ourselves yeah, that helps. Uh, we that ended up being a collaboration with another artist, but when it was written, it was just something we were going to do. So, yeah, on that point, like when you're writing, uh, how do you build in the limitations? Like, are you thinking as you create about what you're going to be able to do, or do you kind of have like a first pass of the script where it's just like creative splurge, get it all, get all the ideas on the page, and then a second pass will like look at what's actually feasible to to be able to do yourselves. How does it work? Every everything we've ever done has been creatively guided and inspired by the parameters that we know we have. There's never been a version of any script we've had that we couldn't do everything in it, except Synchronic. There were versions there were versions of Synchronic that literally had like dinosaurs, you know. And so, <laughs> so, uh, but like resolution, it's it's written, um, it's written as like this thing that it was like. Uh, if this, if, if, if we don't make a movie right now, I'm going off to medical school. Uh, Aaron's going to continue being a low budget DP. And so we, if we don't write this movie that we can actually just go make, then the movie's not getting made. It's just not happening. So it's just written with all those parameters placed in. Spring is a little more ambitious, um, but it still seemed conceivable that we could we could do some of the body horror things in it. Yeah. I think getting into production, we did realize that it was like, oh, this was probably more ambitious than we had anticipated. And by the way, the movie looks great, uh, the, the effects. Um, but like, I don't think we knew till we got into it how hard those things would be to do. Like, mm -hmm. there's no magic and practical effects. If however you think they're doing it, that's how they're doing it. There's a plunger with blood and goo. Like it's not, yeah. <laughs> like, and, and like to do things that are more complicated are just insanely technically complica complicated. Mm. Um, uh, the Endless was for sure written around all the parameters we had. Because again, we were in a position where it was like, if we can't just go make this on our own, we're never making another movie again. Mm. Or at least not one we really want to go make. <laughs> so, uh, the, the parameters are are... It's it's funny as we uh, this this is pretty obvious, but it, but it feels like a lesson that that gets relearned over and over. Is they're the best part of it because it means you can get really specific. Oh, you have access to this children's camp. You know, you know what it looks like. You know how much it costs to rent it. Let's write a movie that takes place in it. And and you know, ex it's not. There's nothing generic about your script. It's incredibly specific. It's written to a very particular location that will be the location because you know it. You know. Um, same thing with your, your actors and characters. If you know it's your best friend, you know exactly what they can do and can't do and what's, what they know about them, don't know about themselves and works really well and all that. Um, and, uh, and even things like something in the dirt, like that, that floating doorway, uh, gag. That's because we were sitting out in our patio and like, what the hell is that door? <laughs> and so we wrote a whole thing about a floating doorway and it's just interesting and weird and, and 
I feel like if there weren't a floating doorway right there, we wouldn't just randomly come up with it. Yeah. But it's very specific and it's memorable. You know, I mean, there's a million things to remember about something in the dirt, but I can just say floating doorway. You're like, I know, I remember that part. You know, um, and uh, and we think that specificity is is one of the many tools, but it's one of the most important things that a script can be. Mm-hmm. Is 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 that it feels of a of a very particular place in time. Yeah. Yeah. It's page 11 that we start to sprinkle in, well, first the idea that something's going to go awry here. And secondly, that thing we talked about earlier, those talking head documentary interviews that, yeah, as I said, you literally describe in the script, there will be several of these documentary interviews. Think what we do in the shadows by way of Errol Morris. Um, so that's one of like the the sort of many layers of ambiguity that are kind of added to the film as it goes on. So later we'll learn that we we have gone in assuming that like any film we're like omnipotent watchers of something that's actually happening but it's later revealed that we're actually watching recreations with vfx shots introducing different layers of uncertainty can you talk me through this like where did this idea come from and was there anything about like the act of filmmaking itself you were trying to comment on how did how did all this this stuff get baked into something in the dirt so many, so yeah. many angles on this one. Yeah, one that's was a huge one. We're we're huge fans of the book um, uh, House of Leaves. Oh yeah, man, me too. By, by yeah. Mark Danielewski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there's a there's obviously a self-referential, self-deconstructing. Um, please apologize. All these words are probably wrong, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, uh, and and a and a meta aspect, also an overused word, but like. That it's like, oh, you're reading this book, and it's starting to again deconstruct itself, and it's a story about a documentary that might exist, and it's being commented on by like Stephen King and Anne Rice, and and it, the book itself feels like a documentary about this movie that was sort of like the Blair Witch Project that exists in this sort of parallel universe that's a lot like our own, um, and we had always really wanted to tell a story like that using cinema, um, and also been really afraid. And straight up, like the, I think, I think even in like the first draft of the script, uh, I can't remember if it was in the brainstorming documents, but I remember us both, both being. I think you you read it and you got it. And you're like, I don't know if this is gonna work. That that when it when it the move when it becomes like literally talking about the VFX and its own movie and it folds in on itself. Um, but it was just a beat of just like I don't know if this is gonna work. But we should, it's scary. We should definitely do it. Like, we should definitely do it. And it wasn't until we got like the early edit from Michael Felker in that moment when the movie, and it was like, oh, this is the most exciting moment in the movie when you realize these guys have been essentially manipulating the audience the whole time. It's funny, it's worth saying this because we were were both like, we're not sure, but like maybe, maybe, or maybe it's just gonna look like we're up our own ass. And and so we we wrote it so that it was um, cuttable. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah so so the, the moments that imply that we're recreating things are always actually something you can just yoink right out of the film. Um, if, if for whatever reason, even though it would work on a story level, it, it didn't work emotionally and you just felt like, why am I watching this? You know? Um, but instead, it became the most interesting part of the movie for us, we think. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because from that moment on, you're still, along, uh, you, you're still along the journey with these characters emotionally and invested in who they are. But also, suddenly, you're interrogating every single aspect of what you're watching. And it's, it was a, that was a really singular experience for me. I don't know if I've ever had that before watching mm, a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool to hear. It was, yeah, it was, that, that was a 
it was a very fun thing to take a swing at. Uh, and uh, very happy we did it. But yeah, like Aaron said, it was like we constructed it so we could remove it if if we got cold feet and wanted to back out. There's <laughs> less of it than you think, you know, and it would probably remove about three minutes from the movie. Yeah. Um, all over the movie, peppered throughout. But actually, though, I think I think by the time we were in production, we were pretty committed to it. And we were just praying that it would work out in the first edit. And then we saw it and we're like, yeah. Yeah, this is cool. Yeah, super by, cool. By the end, you're really leaning into it, and yeah. the, the fireworks display there is yeah. just an insane amount of fireworks, <laughs> <laughs> especially for Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where you can you, you struggle to even find the fireworks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, you know, we should talk a little bit about the supernatural happenings. Which I mean, I, it was never. I had never even contemplated that there. I assumed that there was something happening, and. That sounds like that. That's something you were in agreement for. You were in agreement on that from the beginning. In in some way, the ambiguity was always to what degree it's happening, to what degree what we're seeing is that that actual thing happening. So um, it's introduced in the script that the first time we see a glimmer of like the unknown. Um, you describe he unlocks the door, opens it, scrick. It only gets a few inches. Security chain is latched. He unlatches it, takes a couple of steps out the door. Finally, there's a sound like vibrating glass on wood. He turns back towards the living room, gazing at something just slightly too far left of frame for us to see. Confused, he takes a few more steps inside. A shimmering light sets his increased perplexed awe aglow. We finally reverse angle to the windowsill. The ashtray is rotating on the sill into the sunlight, a ghostly light refraction occurring all around it. So it's light, which is kind of our your way of introducing this sort of sense that something something supernatural is happening here. We then go on this kind of like uh, you know the, the film really kind of takes you through all these different theories of of what it could be, what could be happening. Gravity's involved, sounds involved, lights involved. How did you guys kind of approach it, and and what were the discussions amongst yourselves over you know what what could we throw in here? What supernatural things might be occurring? You, those early documents have everything in the world. Yeah. Um, and also it's like 10 years of discussing um, what we ourselves would could conceivably see as being real supernatural phenomenon. What would it actually be like? How do you express that in cinema and storytelling? Um, when does it cross a line and just become kind of silly or tropey or you've seen it before? Um, and also like how do you what do you do to get a viewer who's seen everything to believe in the supernatural and simultaneously provide them something that they've never quite seen before. Um, and I think ultimately we end up in, in, in the realm of minimalism to, to express it. Um, but there is something to be said for like, it all kind of ultimately does go back to, to John's theories on the EM spectrum. And, I, and it's like, no matter how many times you talk about these things of like, how could you how could you observe something that we would arguably call supernatural or otherworldly or whatever it is? It does all seem to like, you can kind of connect it to electromagnetism in some way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so what we're seeing is literally light here to, to, to start us out. Um, but there were also, there are were, there were other things going on in the room that are kind of interesting and kind of related to the supernatural. And it was like the geometry of the closet. 
Well, nothing ultimately extraordinary. It's kind of funny. Like, what the hell is John like latching on to? Like, mm-hmm. like the ratio of the frame? Um, All of that uh, is totally made up, by the way. Yeah. Like sometimes <laughs> but, on the day, like just totally made up science, math, yeah. But like when, when you read like, like um, and again, we didn't know about Lovecraft until, we, until after spring. But like you, when you read like Dreams in the Witch House, or uh, yeah, yeah, Dreams in the Witch House, the, um, there, there is an aspect to the, um, the geometry and the, and the advanced mathematics that he is, that, that Lovecraft is making reference to in that story in terms of how that might present this sort of gateway that, I don't know, you know, you, you kind of believe it a little more than, than you believe a traditional idea of like a ghost or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was an aim. We were, we we're going for that. Yeah. Um, there were, there were a lot of things that we threw out as being inconsistent with once we we had to we took it from every idea we could come up with initially and then kind of funneled it down into um, you know essentially three phenomena which are going on I just realized there's gravity there's electromagnetism and then there's this um, this weird mathematical symbol cult which is kind yeah. of another part of the the phenomena going on um, and we'd make sure we boiled all that down into this kind of this idea of like, all right, hopefully our audience can just become afraid of math by the end of all of this in some way. Um, and uh, But it made sense to us, as he was saying. Like, it's it's something where it's like just weirdly believable enough that, have, uh, you know, if you look into simulation theory, for example, by the way, here we go down one of the cut rabbit holes of the movie. But um, if you look into it, there is a really fun uh, simulation theory that says that all of the universe is math. It's, it's, it's uh, either... It's pretty much an unbalanced equation, just barely, mm-hmm. and everything spiraled out into that consciousness and physical material and all of that. Um, so it's one of those weird things that, since that is an actual fun, like theoretical thing, there is no theoretical physics for like souls that live in an afterlife and interact with the world. But there is one for like the, the universe is math, you know? <laughs> yeah. and so you can you can uh, buy into it and uh, and don't quite know why it tickles our brain a little bit more. Yeah. But for example, there was one thing that that we cut. Um, out of I think an early draft of the script or an outline where like the um, uh, like a repairman has to come over because something breaks and um, but for whatever reason the ceiling is just two feet lower that day yeah. and it just didn't work with our it didn't make any sense with what the phenomena we were honing in on this was really early days we were still figuring out what made the most sense for the characters and for just what we could shoot um, but uh but that, that's you know that's a little bit more like what House of Leaves really does do you know reforming its actual size where we didn't really mess with that very much. Um, that's all I can really remember right offhand. I mean, throughout everything. So um, among all of this, I just remembered that uh, that and actually it's in the draft of the script you read that Levi's sort of monologuing in the graveyard about. Um, simulation theory and how it connects the phenomenon yeah there is a top half of that monologue where he expresses to john that um he was watching a youtube video and uh and from the information gleaned from that video he was just wanted to present to john that it's possible that they are both two cryogenically frozen brains communicating with each other (laughs) (laughs) It was very fun to dismiss that theory, but then be like, but cats. <laughs> Cat parasites. Oh, man. Um, and I should point out to the listeners, um, we are currently sat in front of a nice plate of banana bread, which was very kindly provided to us by Sarah. Um, 
I was really hoping for inter- interdimensional fruit, though, guys, not to complain. Um, <laughs> I love that moment in the film. Can, can you tell me about like that scene and sort of where the inspiration for that came from? I don't remember how that where that came from. Did I did I cannibalize interdimensional fruit from like something yes, from, else we it's, had it's done? It's in um, it's in uh, Dreams and the Witch. Oh, that's right. Yes, it was a cannibalized uh, idea we, from an unfinished, an we, unmade movie. Yeah, we have a we had a we had a movie that we were going to go make after Synchronic called Dreams in the Witch House. It's not actually it's not based off of the Lovecraft story. Right. It was it literally was. just the perfect title for the book. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry for the screenplay, and. Um, and it, that that story had interdimensional had some interdimensional fruit in it. Uh, th- go ahead. But, uh, also, I, this is on topic as something that should be said. That's probably expected. You probably heard this from most most creators on your show. Is that um, we have like for every one script that gets made, there's like five that didn't. And and so, like some of those are like pilots. Uh, some of those are like three versions of a pilot that didn't get made. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them are are movies that we were developing on our own to go do at some point. And then you just realize like, oh, it's just like, you know, we need Celebrity Actor X to get this made. And we've done it again. We've put ourselves in this position <laughs> and like, and they're saying no. So we got to go write something smaller. And then you end up cannibalizing all those ideas into these, these smaller, these smaller movies. Yeah. Um, I, I just remembered there's, I, I don't know if this actually even came from me or not, but I, like, the, uh, my, my dad's a tugboat captain and, and, um, and probably because of something like that, I became an Eagle Scout. And so kind of like things like Morse code or, or and like celestial navigation or things that I grew up with, that yeah. kind of fun stuff. And, uh, and I remember one time he told me that the, that I think, is it Beethoven's fifth that goes, dun, 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 dun. is that, yeah, yeah I think so. um, is uh, is Morse code for V, and that's why it's like V for victory, and that's why it was like played for victory or something like that. And I think that I I don't know if that's actually where it came from in the script, but I know it's one reason we like gravitated towards this idea. Like, actually, if you convert this is not in the script, but like Ode to Joy, which is all over the movie, yeah. if you convert that to uh, Morse code, you can kind of make a case that it's 1908, and it's wow, and, uh, no yeah, way. yeah, it's so. <laughs> So it's something where it's like that's actually buried in there in the sound design and all of that, but um, but those were uh, so the Morse code that came out of the the fruit yeah, um, yeah. is is something that we were kind of hoping to turn into music and turn it and then it's a code that translates to another code that translates to another code to another code and. Um, that's the interdimensional fruit. <laughs> <laughs> the the ode to joy scene uh, as you bring it up, that's. You know that that's the real like moment of intensity in the film where you realize like beyond well seemingly beyond any doubt before you start to factor in all the kind of like uncertainty regarding the sort of recreations in VFX. That's the moment where it's like wow something really pronounced is happening here. Um, we're sat in a room with a guitar, kind of scared to play it in case start, shit starts <laughs> popping off. Um, how did that scene come about? Like that's uh, yeah, it's such a special moment. <laughs> that scene. Uh... Okay, I'm trying to track it back. There was okay. Ode to Joy. First off, there is like the aspect of like, okay, we need 
a catchy song that will ne- that, but it can't be something we have to like purchase the rights to and license. Can't afford that. Mm. <laughs> so, oh, to joy. Okay, we did that. We did working through those limitations yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did that with uh, the the poem um, "House of the Rising Sun" in in the endless. Yeah. So, yeah. Same thing. Like, didn't have to license it. It's a poem. Yeah. So. I mean, also, I don't know that the scene would work quite so well if it was like one dance by Drake. Yeah, let's let's stick with those. Good point. Drake will like never license stuff to us. For it's like really expensive. I don't get it. Drake, Um, if you're listening, come on, man. And then there was like, okay, the title "Ode to Joy." What a funny thing to say. The word "joy" among these guys is like. It's you know it's kind of, it's just like there's nothing joyous about these two guys and it was like that was something about that and that the song itself is kind of upbeat and it's like oh these guys this is these guys are this is a dark situation so that's kind of nice and fun and then there was like um, you know in contact when uh, the essentially what what they what, the, the idea of communicating via numbers in contact. I think was was a thing, yeah. and it was like okay, well, music's mathematical, right? So, so wouldn't wouldn't these things kind of latch onto that? And there's also the part, there's also the thing in contact where we've sent out a sent, or they've caught some of our signals, but they got at least in the movie. I get the movie and the book mixed up because I've I've read the book recently and I've seen the movie. Um, but there is like I think maybe just in the movie they talk about it's like oh they're showing us the alien sent us back footage of Hitler, Hitler. because yeah. that's 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 what they got. But it was just this idea of like one thing is music is mathematical and apparently extraterrestrial life or interdimensional life or otherworldly life would communicate via via numbers. Okay, music numbers mathematical got it, and that they would pick up on some piece of media potentially and play it back to us. So whether it was both of those or one of those, it made sense. Yeah. Um, and uh, I could, I could play it on a. I I personally could play it on a guitar. It's a pretty easy thing to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Aaron was starting to play the theremin, and it seemed like something conceivably also relatively easy to learn. Um, and then that scene, the way it. I mean, I got to be honest. That that scene, like the writing of that scene, the entire time was like this. I don't. I don't know if this is this is going to read really clever. I don't know if it'll ever work, and it still was that way about six edits in mm-hmm. <laughs> to, the, to the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it was a weird scene, yeah. uh, and I, I, I'm we're so proud that it's there and that it exists, and we do think it works now very well. Um, it was also like twice that was, as long. That kind of caused, and, and there was yeah. yet there was a lot of like. We didn't know if the audience un- understood the rules of what was happening yet at that time. Literally, while we were shooting it, and and it was just like. Hang on, where are we right now? Do they know that like the electromagnetism thing is me and the gravity is you and all of that? So there was a lot of like, uh, what is it called, say and speak, yeah, See, yeah. something like that. There was a lot of that just to be sure, and just cutting all that shit out made it into a, a, a cinema a little bit more. Um, yeah, we'd like to think that this scene now exists is possibly the weirdest scene to exist in a movie expressing supernatural phenomenon. Like, like, like there will never be a scene in paranormal activity weirder than this scene. I I challenge them. (laughs) Two guys jamming on a a, uh, theremin and a guitar to make a quartz crystal float to, to a certain height while a closet with an unknown source flashes light. Yeah. And then blows out all of the electronics in the apartment, which then leads them to a cemetery. 
<laughs> but one yeah. really fun discovery, though, is just the idea. It's like once all these things were in place, we just talked about like John's theory about the Pythagorean brother. Pythagoras did have the harmony of the spheres mm-hmm. and you could connect that to it. So that was pretty fun. It was fun to like make that discovery <laughs> yeah. that like it all connected to John's insane theory about the Pythagorean Brotherhood in a way that was like made sense to yeah. some extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but that kind of speaks to uh, the sort of like recurrence of that symbol in the film. It speaks to what we were talking about earlier in terms of like the confirmation bias, if you like, of living in the age of the internet and sort of... Uh, that human thing of like when you start looking for patterns you can find patterns almost in in places where there are no patterns but your brain is searching for it your brain is trained to actually like identify and, and find patterns by the end of the film uh, I, by the way i want to i want to comment on that is i think that that's more about what we're saying about conspiracy theory than anything yeah. that's actually in the modern world it's the i think the phrase and i could be getting this both the phrase and the pronunciation wrong, but it's like pareidolia, where you 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 know people look at their peanut butter and they see the Virgin Mary, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, signals in the noise, um, and uh, but that was so much more of what we talked about than than things like modern day conspiracies. Yeah, uh, it's it's more about just you, we need to adjust our noise filters. That's <laughs> that's really it. Well, that's kind of what I was going to ask. Like, Sorry. how did <laughs> you how did you kind of like engineer an ending that felt satisfying given what these characters have gone through and sort of, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very empathetic film. Like you, these, these, these characters are flawed, but it doesn't feel like you're trying to sort of judge them or punish them. How did you work out like the ending and specifically the outcome for each character that would kind of feel fitting? It's weird. It's, we, we knew from like, we knew from the earliest brainstorms on it, it never changed that Levi would always be uh, a victim of this situation, um, or not a victim, that Levi's tragedy would be his death of not getting out sooner. And we knew that John's tragedy would be that he can't let go of an idea of certainty and he's gonna continue going down this rabbit path and that, down this rabbit hole. And that, that hopefully an audience member could make the argument that John's tragedy was worse than Levi's. Like it was worse to be him than it was to be dead. Yeah. And that was always that was always the the hope. That was always the the aim of the story. And um and so it was really like the whole movie was always backing up into that. Um there was never there there was never a version where things turned out okay for these guys mm-hmm. because it felt oddly morally and ethically irresponsible yeah, to give yeah. them to give them any sort of um redemption or out or yeah. or mercy. Uh, it felt like we'd be saying it's okay to uh, go in pursuit of certainty via conspiracy theories sometimes, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> yeah, as long as you're our movie characters. Yeah, uh, yeah the, uh, we, the, this is something we struggle with all the time because giving things like a really neat bow is a nice way for people to call your movie solid. It's, which is, you know, solid, <laughs> which means you, you finished it, you don't stay for the credits and you never talk about it again, but you didn't hate it, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, but, but there's a, there's a huge difference between like, um, leaving people without any answers and just leaving them frustrated 
and um, and leaving them just like talking and figuring it out. And one is like you just put the clues all over the movie to what what there is an actual solid mythology. Haha, <laughs> didn't there is a, there is an actual like built mythology um, that we have. We just didn't spell it out in, in, with like A B to C. Um, so we weren't just making up random stuff and, and plugging it in. Um, and then two was we made sure to promise the audience from the very beginning that it was about not having answers. Sarah Dina Smith's character is is really helpful for that, but kind of every all the talking heads yeah. keep on. And sometimes we hit it really hard on the nose, and we actually cut those scenes. But it used to be like very like like the the point of the movie is that that we're not going to, to that it's that there might not be any answers for these people. And then uh, and then the third thing is something that that comes up with all of our movies, which is you have to just make sure to very satisfyingly resolve the character's relationship. Not their lives, just their relationship. Because um, that's what the movie ends up being about. Is like You just really kind of care more about the two people rather than what's going on in their apartment. And, uh, and as long as you feel like they've, they've finished their arcs, and these guys obviously very much did, you know, um, that, uh, that was what we were hoping would bring in the satisfaction. Yeah. I guess poetically, you had to show um, the, you had to end this film in a way where Levi had been consumed by his, the, you know, this thread that he couldn't stop following, and it, and it had to lead to his death, I suppose. But the the way that you do that visually, the the sort of fate that befalls him is so incredible, so visual. Like, how did you land on on him floating up to the sky and sort of yeah in I've never seen that death before on screen. We knew we knew that obviously gravity was going to be a component of the phenomenon, and and in thinking about like what is the scariest thing that could happen to one under these conditions, it really did seem to be that it was like it would be, it would be being in those conditions and not having a roof over your head and floating off into wherever. Like I think one of the scariest deaths I can think of. Is like George Clooney's death in Gravity, mm-hmm. it's just yeah. kind of floating out in, in, into space, into nothingness, and so it was like, okay, that for for a movie that again, this is a very weird, uh, you know, the weirdest version of Paranormal Activity ever. <laughs> that, that seemed like the scariest death anyone could have, and it and it flowed. Uh, oh my God, I'm not going to use the word organically. It flowed very naturally from. The, the the mythology the, and the, the rules that the movie had already established. Um, and also, it it didn't require that you saw a close-up of him floating off, but there was something really haunting about just like, no, we'll just like John will find the cigarette and see the shoes with no feet in them. Yeah. And and then and then just look up in the sky and you and you just like kind of know what happened. But obviously you can see him a little bit. But um it just seemed like it was like a really haunting ending and and also thematically also connected to here's a guy who is constantly blaming like using gravity as a metaphor for the things that went wrong in his life yeah and yeah. and that's his ultimate fate is no gravity <laughs> he gets what he asked he gets for. what he asked for you know he sure does yeah, yeah. Well, guys, I should wrap this up because I've taken up a lot of your time but um before I do, you know it, it's interesting this film coincides with well resolution came out a decade ago like this is 10 years of your career kind of bookended in a really nice way and uh you know you described it earlier as a reset going forward into the next 10 years you're obviously like involved at the moment in all these exciting marvel projects but when you look ahead 
what do you think your your priorities where do you think your priorities lay what do you think your kind of like commitment is in terms of do you want to keep telling stories like something in the dirt like is there is are there bigger projects more along the lines of synchronic which obviously as we discussed wasn't quite the big budget thing that many assumed where do you see the future lying what 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 thread would you most like to follow um without a doubt something in the dirt is not a one-off for us uh we that was the most fun we've had making movies in a really long time um we have a we have a production company i think i mentioned at the beginning called rustic films i'm wearing its t-shirt right now um and we're just so incredibly proud of being able to finally like help other filmmakers as well and uh and um but that is pretty pretty um fervently committed to the the independent model and we're not going to leave that um so yeah, I mean, we're also, we're, oh, go ahead. I'll say like, I mean, even now, uh, nights and weekends are spent working on that. What is our next thing for that? Yeah. Um, which is essentially a, 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 what is hopefully a TV show at worst, at, at smallest another indie film in the endless universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of like where we put all of our passion. Yeah. Are you able to, uh, to tease what that project might be? You mentioned that there were a lot of things you wrote in lockdown prior to writing something in the dirt. Is it one yeah. of those things? No, it's actually something separate from all of those. All those are just sitting around, but. Uh, probably not, I don't know. It, 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 it uh, the main characters are, are Aaron and Justin again, but that's about as far as we should probably go right now. I don't know. Um, what I can say, because, uh, you know, um, I, I am stunned by how good it is. It is Justin's best work by far, and it's just so, so incredibly fun to work on. Um, I, I wish I could get into the plot more. I don't know if we're ready for it or not, but it's, um, it is, uh, it is very easily could be like the thing that like if we die right after it's finished, it's like okay, cool, I did it. You know, that was that that was the one to go out on. You know, it's very Exciting. cool. Yeah. Well, guys, I've absolutely adored this conversation. It's been so much fun chatting with you guys. Um, Hopefully we're not just three cryogenically frozen heads communicating and this has actually happened for real. But yeah, I've had an absolute blast. Thanks so much for joining me, guys. Thanks, man. It's just lovely talking to your brain. (laughs) You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.